Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. What do you like best about your job? And be aware I, that they are probably... They're listening? Actually, I don't know. If they're li- I hope they're listening. I hope our <laughs> colleagues listen to us. <laughs> um, okay. So um, my... I think it's definitely so I'm a fundraiser, mm-hmm. right? So um, I'm my job is to meet our community, right? Mm-hmm. So to meet our members, meet people that are interested in our work and get to know them. And I think I'm a people person. So I think that's... Are you now? Am I not? <laughs> I think I am. <laughs> you are, Vicky. Yeah, I'm a people person. So I really like to like get out there and mix it up with people and learn about what their favorite parts of their job jobs are. So you just you just like and you enjoy talking to folks and talking, learning yeah. about their stories. Yeah, yeah, I would say. I mean, I'm I'm not going to talk about the podcast part of my job, even though it is a big yeah. part of it. It's uh, so obvious. Yeah, yeah. that aside. Uh, yeah, so I I teach science communication basically, mm-hmm. um, and I weirdly enough, I think it's also the people part. I think the the yeah. most fun I have is when we are doing workshops or trainings and we're actually going out and we do the stuff virtually, but I like the in-person stuff a little bit more. And it's, it's talking to folks about what they do and who their audience is and mm-hmm. kind of what they're trying to message and actually doing kind of the the group work or one-on-one. I And it's funny, I never thought that um, I, I had this kind of persona that I made for myself when I was a little bit younger that was false, mm-hmm. but like, I don't care about people and blah, I hate people and blah, blah, <laughs> blah. And, and that's um, my, my, my partner kind of literally yelled at me once and it's like that's not who yeah. you are stop stop doing that and yeah. uh and it's true i i for as much as my uh i think i wanted to create this persona i was like i just don't care like i i like people you a lot do. i, I yeah. do people. it's i do it's quite yeah. lovely and i just i want to know their stories i want to know everything about them yeah me too science is fascinating But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right. So I asked you about your favorite job, or excuse me, your favorite part of your job. Mm -hmm. Because for many scientists, at least this was the case for me, for many scientists who do field work, that's usually their favorite part of what they do. Oh, interesting. So, so getting out of the lab, getting out of the classroom. And yeah. Really I mean, it's not there. universal, but I think that's like, I, I think that's a big reason why field scientists get into it because they want to be in the field. <laughs> well, yes, that's in the name. You just said field scientists <laughs> in the field. You don't I'm, want to rein them in. I'm, I'm that, uh, I'm the Leo point in the emoji when you say the, the name of the thing in the thing. It's like feeling yeah. the field. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it, because of, so, so I, I have that assumption and actually um, I talked uh, today and I, yes, I, I produce this episode. <gasps> I, I know. I'm, I'm so actually, it, it's, it's just me it, and, and our guest. Uh, it better be good. I, Jeez, I hope so. <laughs> uh, but I talked with a researcher about, well, well, a whole bunch of, frankly, different field experiences uh, that he's he's been on. And, and mm-hmm. I have to note that our guest today is actually a friend of mine. And our discussions um, 
I think around a, a bonfire, literally, uh, were the inspiration for the series on field work. So no surprise, I had a great time chatting with them. Okay, so essentially, you found a way to spend time like just catching up with your friend, <laughs> making fun with your friend, and like called called it work. So billable hours. <laughs> Billable hours. Yeah. <laughs> you know what, Vicky? It can be both. All right. Yeah. You can like you can like people you work with. I talk with you every week, and I think we're friends. Right? Right, Vicky? Yeah. We're <laughs> no, we are friends. That we is are uninspired friends. to say the no, least. No, we're totally friends. <laughs> all right. Well, before I feel any worse about myself, uh, let's get into the interview. <laughs> My name is Doug Getz. I'm an atmospheric scientist. I am a researcher working at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado Boulder. My research is mostly focused around in-situ measurements of aerosol, water vapor, and dynamics within the upper troposphere and lower stratosphere. Um, but I've also worn a few different hats in my career. You know, for example, my PhD work was mostly focused on field measurements of emissions of climate forcing pollutants and compounds. So we're talking about different pollutants or maybe not necessarily pollutants, but uh, gas or particle phase pollution that either absorbs or reflects sunlight or has some sort of indirect effect with clouds and that sort of thing that can change the climate. All right, so you and Doug are friends, so you can do mm-hmm. some translating for me. Oh, sure. Yeah, and honestly, this was this was good for me. As we were talking, I was thinking, do I actually know the different layers of the atmosphere? Uh, and the answer was, not really. Uh, I am a bad AGU employee. Uh, so we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll do some uh, explaining for those who might not be familiar. So the troposphere okay. is, if we're going from the Earth up, uh, it starts around your surface and extends like five to nine miles. I'm going to do this in standard because I am American. Uh, and most all weather in this region, and this is mostly where planes fly. Above the troposphere is the stratosphere that extends to about 31 miles up. And then this is where the ozone layer is. And then above that is the mesosphere, the thermosphere, the ionosphere, and then the exosphere is the topmost of what we consider the atmosphere. All right, kids, tune in tomorrow for another episode of Shane Hanlon, The Science Guy. (laughs) (laughs) That was so like... I just just need You're to get explaining it out there. It. Vicky. Thank you. Yeah, you no, translated it. I'm uh, yeah. I'm I'm here to help. And so uh, I started my conversation with Doug by talking about some of the places around the world he's traveled to for field work, beginning with South Korea. This is part of a sort of multinational project, measurement project that um, is named ACLIP. The acronym's a little silly. Don't tell anyone I said this, but <laughs> it's the uh, the Asian Summer Monsoon Chemistry and Climate Impact Project. It took place in South Korea, and and the the general idea behind it is we're researching a pollution layer above the Asian continent that happens during the Asian Summer Monsoon. Okay, and so 
during the monsoon, stormy weather actually takes ground level pollution and it pushes it up into the upper uh, atmosphere. So, you know, higher up into the troposphere and into the stratosphere. And that pollution is actually confined by this circulation pattern that happens above the monsoon uh, that's called an anticyclone. And and so there's a lot of unknowns about what kind of chemistry happens inside this layer. And then also, you know, what's the, the quantity of the pollution, the concentrations and things like that. And then the other aspect of it is we're trying to understand how this pollution layer breaks out of that confined, uh, you know, Asian monsoon region in these eddy shedding events. And so they get these eddy sheddings uh, transport pollution then from from over the continent and then over into the Western Pacific, and it can be transported all the way to Alaska and the United States. And that can either go into the higher up into the stratosphere, or it can interact with air at the surface. And so my role was, I was leading a field team and we were doing uh, balloon borne measurements of aerosol, water vapor, ozone, and, you know, uh, meteorological parameters uh, throughout this layer. So we were actually using sort of like larger weather balloons to probe this layer and understand what's inside of it. So just a, a point of clarification, what's, what's eddy shedding? Yeah, so the eddy shedding is a term that a colleague of mine came up with. And the whole idea is that there's this anticyclone that's happening. So there's a circulation pattern. And so just like in like a river where you have eddies, you sort of sometimes have a break in that circulation and then a little piece of that breaks off and it also has some circulation to it. And so it then moves out into, you know, the Western Pacific or I didn't mention before, it can also go the opposite direction and break out into the Middle East, into Europe. And you mentioned that so you're doing a lot of this work with balloons. I mean, what what are we talking about here? What's like how big are these things? What are just just to like yeah. get wrap my mind around what you mean when you say balloons? Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's it's much bigger than a party balloon. Um, so they're actually fairly small payloads. I mean, less than ten pounds. Okay. And uh, and typically, you know, if we need to make more you know, simultaneous measurements of different compounds like ozone and water vapor and aerosol at the same time, we will put them on separate balloons. Gotcha. So. Okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm picturing, I was picturing like Zeppelin sized. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Not, yeah, not, not quite, quite that. Well, but we, I mean, myself and colleagues of mine, we do operate balloons that size. So not Zeppelin as in like, you know, the, size of the Goodyear blimp or anything like that, but, you know, the size of a, of a house for sure. We actually were, we were based for this campaign, which is not the most fun place ever, but it was from a U.S. Air Force base because we were able to land these aircraft there and operate from there. For me, this was my first time on an Air Force base. And I got to say, it was, it was a kind of a surreal experience, you know, being in little America, essentially, in South Korea for a lot of the time and seeing these, you know, giant uh, different aircraft take off, jet, fighter jets, things like that. And it was, it was really stressful for me anyways, because <laughs> we were operating, you know, these balloon soundings and 
we our launch site was actually right on the side of the runway. And so, <laughs> yeah, and so we had to basically coordinate with the air traffic control. So the tower, I'd have to call them up. We'd launch. So we would we would get the entire payload, we get the balloon ready, inflated and everything. And then I'd have to call them on with my using my cell phone, call the tower and be like, is it okay to launch? And as I was doing this, typically a fighter jet would be taking off or, <laughs> or a, cargo, a cargo plane would be taking off, whatever. And so typically it worked out. We didn't run into any issues, but it was, needless to say, very stressful. So yeah. there's no like close calls between balloons or planes or anything? You got it all figured out? No, I don't think so. And in fact... I, I kind of suspect they liked it because they could use our balloons sort of as like training, you know, uh, maybe oh, like sorry. like target practice or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just a that's a sort of a not a rumor, but that's sort of a, <laughs> sure cannot yeah. confirm. But well, right, having yeah, yeah, having yeah. additional obstacles up there might be uh, might be a secondary benefit uh, for them. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, I really like the idea of planes using research balloons for like Top Gun training. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit that's exactly what I was picturing when he was describing yeah. this. And I, to reiterate what Doug said, we don't actually know what was, was happening <laughs> or if that was happening at all, frankly, though the imagery is pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. But beyond his work in South Korea, I what originally got me interested in, in chatting with Doug is I knew that he spent some time in Antarctica. So we, we steered the uh, conversation in that direction. Back in 2015, I was lucky enough as a grad student to be able to go down to McMurdo Station to help out with some research there. So I was part of a field team, and we were interested in understanding uh, basically particulate matter aerosols and their sources in coastal Antarctica. And we were interested in that because it is basically a, it's a pristine environment. It's, it's one of the few places in the world that is not really affected by, um, you know, anthropogenic pollution. I mean, it is to a certain extent, but it's probably to the least degree almost any of almost anywhere in the world. Yeah. So we were down there and it was a really fun campaign because we actually had a research station out on the sea ice, which was maybe uh, 30 kilometers or so from the base, right on the sea ice edge almost, or as, as comfortable as we were, or as close as we were comfortable to going to the sea ice edge, I guess. Um, and so we had some, you know, really good research grade instrumentation where we could look at aerosol composition, the size of these particles, and then, um, you know, concentrations all in, in real time. Like physically speaking, what does that just like run us through kind of what the, what it takes to do that type of work? It's pretty interesting. I mean, this is my first field work, I think, in a cold place. So I didn't really know what to expect. And uh, so when you, you know, before you go down, you stop over in New Zealand, which is where, you know, the Antarctic sort of center is, which then you fly on a plane down to McMurdo Station which is directly south, south of New Zealand. And um, it's funny because they set you up with your, your gear when you get there. So, you know, you're supposed to take 
you know, it's going to be cold. And so you're like, all right, I need all these socks and I need long underwear. I need all these like, you know, layers. And, but they give you these really funny, like giant red parkas. They're called big reds, big red. And so there's these giant parkas and surprisingly warm. And, and so, uh, even in, in, you know, negative 40 degree weather, it's like the perfect jacket for it. So you get set up with all this gear, you fly down, uh, and it's a little bit of like shell shock when you go down because it's just a, it's a really unique place down there. First of all, it's just stunningly beautiful everywhere. So McMurdo Station is on a volcanic island and uh, Mount Erebus, which is the volcano that is, you know, creating that island is just right there. And it's usually, you know, steaming and everything. And then, um, you know, if you look out from the station, there is just a lot of sea ice. So it's just really gorgeous. And and then the, the thing that to me was really unique about it was the, either the, the amount of sunlight, you know? So being in almost 24 hour darkness is, is, pretty mind-blowing but then the really mind-blowing thing at the end of the season uh in this case was when it's 24 hour sunlight and it is it's the weirdest thing ever like it really does make you go a little bit crazy (laughs) especially when you leave you know your the dining hall or you leave your dorm room or whatever at at midnight and it's it looks like it's noon so that was one of the really fun parts is we um so because we were, you know, 40 kilometers or so from the base and we'd have to commute out out there every day, we sort of had our choice of vehicles. So we were assigned a, uh, basically a Ford truck, like an F-150 with, that has tracks instead of wheels. And so they're called mat tracks. And that was like the luxury ride, you know, like <laughs> that was like really great. <laughs> but we were also assigned a, um, sort of like a snowcat type thing. It's called a piston bully. And it's one of these, like, you know, looks like a tank with tracks and everything. And you're in like a little box and you're sort of steering with a, it almost feels like you're steering, steering with like joysticks or something. And, uh, and, but the trouble is those things go like five miles per hour or something. It's like walking pace. So, um, so anytime we got to take the mat track, we were very happy about that. Vicky, have you ever been in any sort of, uh, let's say, snow-optimized vehicle? <laughs> no, I think, well, you know, well, we've, already, <laughs> we've already discussed um, my try for being a Zamboni driver. Oh, thing. sure, right. But um, no, just like snow chains, nothing, oh. nothing really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did I you guess. ever have to use snow chains? Yeah, well, a little bit growing up, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we... Yeah, I think I think when I was younger, we would use chains a little bit more. Didn't quite need them, I guess, as as technology improved. I'm not quite sure. Or like uh, the climate, yeah. Or or that. Uh, there's there's fewer uh, snow events. Yeah, I did. Uh, we did have a snowmobile growing up uh, that I would take out when I was honestly probably far too young, um, and I would regularly get it stuck. Uh, it's surprising with a thing that's just skis and a big track that you could get it stuck. But for one reason or another, I get it stuck and then literally have to like get off of it. And I don't know, I was probably 
14, 15 at the time yeah. and like lift up the back end and then lift up the front end. And and there were some situations I got into where I'm very surprised that I got out of uh, maybe, maybe honestly, though, I was just a poor driver. I don't know. How would uh, Kristen describe your driving now? Uh, we're not going to talk about it. And uh, <laughs> I will say that I managed not to, uh, when driving said snowmobile, I managed not to crash or damage okay. it. Uh, okay. But I will say that Doug's team wasn't so lucky with some of their equipment. One of our instruments got shipped down was going to be a PhD project for a uh, student from the University of Colorado. And the instrument got destroyed in shipping. And it was, it was pretty sad, actually, because it was going to be like a big project for him and, and everything. So he had to really like switch gears while he was down there and sort of take up some new, like, you know, different, look at some different ideas and things and, you know, work with different instruments. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that can happen. I mean, you, you're shipping things all the way around the world you may not have that one special part that, that you need to make it work. Um, so I think that was that year, that was probably the, the biggest, you know, hurdle we had to, to go over because otherwise the instruments really worked well, which is not always that, you know, not always the case, especially with these like sort of research grade, you know, mass spectral instruments and things like that. Well, and you, and you mentioned you were down there twice. So that first time you were kind of looking at these aerosols and these what were considered kind of pristine environments. Uh, what, what was the second time like? Yeah, so that was in 2019. We were there for one of the first winters that they allowed scientists to be down there during the winter. So uh, this project actually was using balloons. So we were using uh, much larger balloons than like we did in Korea, for example, um, because there aren't, there's no, you know, air traffic control regulations down there. So you can really do almost anything you want within reason. And so we were looking at uh, stratospheric aerosol. And what we were really interested in was during the Antarctic winter, it's a time when the stratosphere and the mesosphere actually sort of descend. And when you have that descent, you have um, meteorites that are burning up into in the in the mesosphere. Actually, the, the smoke from them and the particles can be uh, seed nuclei, essentially, for creating uh, bigger particles in the stratosphere and then into this troposphere. And it's a big part of, um, it's potentially a, big part of uh, polar stratosphere clouds. I don't know if you're familiar. I am not. With that? Okay, so the idea behind the polar stratosphere cloud is it is a cloud that happens at very, very, very cold temperatures over Antarctica and also over, um, you know, the, the Arctic, but less frequently. And this occurs when there's the, the polar vortex and it's because of the very cold temperatures and because of the composition of the atmosphere at the time, it creates these clouds that are made of, of nitrogen, nitrate particles, essentially. And so they interact with ozone and they can deplete ozone. And when that happens, you get something like a ozone hole. I can't imagine 
working or living in a place like Antarctica. I know um, another friend that I guess just came back, right? And like watching them live and exist on Instagram. It's so cold. You have to get so ready for everything. And they were, you know, doing, just celebrating little things like, look, there's more sun today. Yay. (laughs) It's just wild. Yeah. I've always, um, uh, not always, but since kind of working in this realm, working at AGU, (laughs) it has become more of an interest for me to spend some time uh, kind of like on the ice. Uh, But I I honestly don't know if I ever will. And uh, I'll just at this point just kind of live vicariously through through other folks. Yeah. Um, and but but what's what's interesting, uh, kind of getting back to Doug, the way I actually know Doug is through a mutual mm-hmm. friend from Pennsylvania, where Doug's from, and I don't know if you know this, where I'm from, Vicky. Yeah, rural Pennsylvania. <laughs> from rural Pennsylvania, uh-huh. and uh, yeah, he uh, he's actually done some work there as well. Okay, so I'm just imagining you guys just nerding out over being from Pennsylvania. Is he also from rural Pennsylvania? He is from. Rural-ish Pennsylvania. (laughs) Rural-ish. Say that three times fast. (laughs) (laughs) You've done all this work uh, around the world, but I I know that you've also done some stuff here in the States, right? You've you've done some work around the Marcella Shale? Yes, yes. So um, that was actually my first uh, PhD research project Um, way back in the day. I won't say how far along back, but <laughs> yeah, don't because yeah. you and I are around the same age, so <laughs> right, yeah, nobody yeah. needs to know that. <laughs> yeah, I still like to think myself as a young, you know, scientist, but yeah. maybe I'm starting to lose that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, the Marcellus Shale. Yeah, right. So I'm actually so I'm from Pennsylvania, um, and and so this is something that interests me back then. And my PhD advisor uh, was able to get money to actually look at sort of the impacts, air quality and also climate impacts of Marcellus Shale development. So, you know, we're talking about this sort of newer back then um, natural gas resource that was just freshly being tapped. And so so what I did was I... um, used a a mobile lab with some colleagues and we went around different parts of Pennsylvania and we actually were able to measure emissions from these different natural gas sort of development sites. So, you know, we're talking about like well pads and uh, different infrastructure that is part of the transmission of this gas from the well all the way to really not quite the distribution site, but, you know, up to that. Um, point almost. And so, yeah, it was an interesting project. And I think almost it's fairly impactful as well, because we were one of the first, we were one of the first teams to really be looking at um, these air quality impacts. And uh, it was, it was fun because, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. So I was the local, especially when we worked around the, the Pittsburgh region. And then I got to explore places in Pennsylvania. I've never really been. I mean, in like that sort of northeastern, you know, New York border. I've never been up there and it was it's kind of a unique and really beautiful place. So, uh, just interested, so I, I I you know, I'm also from Pennsylvania. Uh, I talk about that a lot actually on this podcast. Yeah. And uh I'm interested from a 
from like a culture perspective, did folks, non, non-scientists like outside your group, did they know what you were doing? Like- yeah, you know, it was funny. So from, I would say from like the perspective of like the local community, they were all very supportive, you know, and, and friendly, really. I mean, it's not like anyone, even if we maybe trespassed on people's property a little bit, I think everyone was actually concerned about how this natural gas, you know, extraction was impacting their local air quality. Probably less about the, the climate impacts, but definitely the, the air quality impacts. And so um, that was really nice. Um, you know, the one thing that we did have trouble with, though, is we sort of got the runaround with the by the natural gas companies themselves. Uh, we tried to uh, sort of collaborate with them. And we actually were really hoping to be able to get site access so we could move, we could put these mobile lab, like the mobile lab closer to the site, you know, drive around closer. But also we were doing this uh, uh, tracer gas release method to um, to understand the, the quantity of emissions from these different sources. And so, you know, if you're, if you're able to put your, your tracer gas closer to the source, the more accurate your measurement can be. And so that, that kind of caused some issues. And so, you know, in the end, they were not very helpful, I would say. And we didn't have many, you know, bad encounters with like the, the, the workers on these different sites or anything like that. I wouldn't say because they really didn't know what we were doing. And in fact, that I think in that period of time, it was just so chaotic because everyone was trying to tap this resource so quickly that, you know, if there was a truck, a milk truck full of instruments driving around, you know, circling 40 times, n- no one's going to bat an eye because they think it's just part of the process, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I love that imagery. Yeah. Like going around the site. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, it was also, it's complicated in Pennsylvania just because of the, the, to- the topography is so difficult. You know, I mean, you know, from being um, a Pennsylvanian, it's just not, all right, there's no straight roads. Nothing's in a grid. <laughs> and, and there's so many hills and obstacles to go around that it was, it was so, like such a challenging study to actually you know, make these emission measurements. So do you ever have like, did a truck ever break down or any, any failures out there? No, we almost went off the road one time, uh, <laughs> based on my poor directions, <laughs> but you know, I think otherwise we, we were pretty good. Yeah. Were you, uh, yeah. the, when different companies, uh, make fun of different, um, navigational apps it's like you said like oh go right here and someone just literally turned the wheel immediately and just went for it (laughs) yeah Yeah, it was more like i think we had some sort of instrument malfunction at the time and so uh we there was someone that wasn't normally driving this milk truck uh was driving it in this case and i was like all right just pull over real quick and he's like all right no problem trouble is there's not a whole lot of uh, clearance under those things, and they're very top-heavy. Yeah. And then if you, uh, you know, if there's just a little bit of an embankment, you end up toppling the, the truck. So it's also lots of yeah. like roadside irrigation ditches in rural Pennsylvania. Yes, so exactly. It's looking uh, a, yeah. a little hairy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay, we were talking about driving before. So have you ever driven into a ditch in Pennsylvania or anywhere else? Oh, what's funny is when I made this prompt, I didn't actually connect the two. Uh, <gasps> no, the short answer is no. Uh, I do have to drive some pretty large vans when I'm teaching my field course. Uh-huh. But I think... I mean, I guess you'd have to ask the students, but I think I've been lucky so far. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take a survey. Well, but also a ditch, a ditch isn't that big of a deal, but I wonder if Doug ever had any more significant close calls or situations. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, you could, uh, you could say that. Yeah. I mean, in fact, yeah, we had a big one when, so I did, uh, research in Nepal, actually, back in, I think that was also 2015. And so we were looking at uh, emissions from, so aerosol and gas phase emissions from different sort of poorly understood uh, emission sources that are common to South Asia, but really uncommon to like the developing world, you know? So we're operating out of Kathmandu and then sort of driving to different places around Kathmandu and down to the the border of India to this region known as the the Tri-Plains. And it was a really good project. And we had, I think, we're supposed to be there for like six to eight weeks, something like that. But we got shut down because of the earthquake that happened there that April. So we were there for the earthquake and it was just, you know, that was, that was it. We're like, we wanted to keep going, but it was just the, the conditions were, were too poor to, to really, you know. Yeah. yeah. So did you, like, did y'all end up just leaving then? I mean, that was, yeah. Like what yeah. were there contingencies? <laughs> it's just. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think there's a, um, you know, standard operating procedure to what to do. And when there's a natural disaster during field work, yeah, we, we decided to leave and it wasn't necessarily because of us. It was, I think more also our universities were worried about the risk, especially after a big disaster like that with, you know, is there available clean water? Is there, are the buildings safe? That sort of thing. And so it was, it's kind of funny because we ended up the, the team that I was on anyways from Drexel University, we were more or less like emergency evacuated out of there. So whoever our insurance company was and with the university, they decided to send in like a special team, like sort of like a black ops team (laughs) to extract us from, (laughs) or this is how it was advertised when they called us on the phone about it, you know? And so then it ended up just being this one Nepalese guy who was dressed in all black and had like a sort of a, you know, rugged pickup truck. And he shows up at a hotel and he's like, I'm your extraction team. <laughs> and so he, and, and it was really funny, too, because at that point, it, you know, it was a few days after the earthquake. And there's something about, I think, sort of the resiliency of the people of Nepal and that region where they more or less it felt like things were back to normal after like five days of the earthquake, you know, or whatever it was. Uh, But so he showed up and he's like, he's like, why are you guys so important? Why am I like, what's the big deal? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and so, you know, we jump in the truck and then he knows the guy at the airport that then, you know, gets us through uh, security. We just jump all the lines and it's really not, it was just like some guy who was like, 
working baggage claim or something like that and just like opened the ropes for us and got us, <laughs> you know, through everything. And it, it was just a really funny experience, you know, because it was... Yeah. No, I can imagine it being pretty yeah. surreal too. It's like, it's like something you'd see on a TV show or hear about like in a movie or something. It's like, all right, I'm here to get you out. And like, oh, we're, we're gone. <laughs> we're, we're, we're out. All right. Right. Yeah. You imagine some sort of like Tom Cruise character showing up and, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Vicky, have you, have you ever been extracted from somewhere? Um, Yes, but not in a science way, okay. not oh. in a nature way. Okay. So when I was in college, we drove, we drove to Pennsylvania to Philadelphia, okay. actually, to see Taking Back Sunday. Oh my gosh, you're just speaking my language right now. Continue. And we were in the like front of the like general admission standing, sure. like jumping around being excited part. And I started to like get too hot and too excited all at once. And like the bodyguard people that stand between that area and the stage, <laughs> he had to like physically pick me up, like hands under my armpits, pick me up straight, <laughs> just like boop, pick me up out of the crowd completely oh my over goodness. the railing and then drop me between the stage and the railing to like be taken away. What's and up? then I was fine. Yeah. But that was my extraction. Like a bodyguard came, like saw whatever was happening and came and just like picked me up higher than any human has ever picked up another adult human. What's funny is I I have never I have never been the one being extracted from a crowd yeah. at a at a show before, but I right. am positive that I have been with groups of friends. Yeah. At a Taken Back Sunday show. <gasps> Not like, not probably not if like that one, but oh, that's, that would be so funny. That was my wheelhouse. Uh, yeah. And I have seen friends be extracted yeah. from the front row in that exact manner. I, you just get I, it's like too hot, too exciting. <laughs> like everything comes at you at once. Yeah. I, um, I will say I'm, I'm happy that that's never personally happened to me. Uh, I'm right. happy that I've never been extracted in the way that Doug was, Doug and uh, his yes. team were extracted. And I'm also happy that I haven't had any run-ins with some specific and let's say intimidating federal agencies. I work with some colleagues that are, that do ballooning from uh, Laramie, Wyoming. And so they're they're trying to keep this record of stratospheric aerosol, and it's been you know happening for you know thirty years or something from uh, Laramie. And so when you do these this type of field work, uh, it's you know you get up at three in the morning, you launch these balloons, sorry, one balloon, right at sunrise because that's when there's no wind in Laramie, which is pretty rare actually. And, and so this thing goes up into the stratosphere and then it lands, it pops and it lands somewhere, you know, downwind. And that place can be anywhere in rural Wyoming, you know? And so on this one sounding that we had, it landed actually in Nebraska and it was, it landed right next to a nuclear missile silo. <laughs> and, and so it was really funny because, you know, if you're, if you were out in that way, you know, in, in sort of Eastern Wyoming, Western Nebraska, you know what these nuclear missile silos look like, you know, mm -hmm. and they're, they're 
pretty subtle. Like you, there's, it's really just a, a pole in the ground that, and you know, it's there, but it landed right next to it. And, you know, obviously there's cameras around and they honestly, it's very strange when something falls out of the sky right next to it. <laughs> and not to mention a balloon uh, that's with it, you know, that is just like, think of like a, a truck bed full of plastic, you know, mm-hmm. like that size of, uh, you know, ballooning plastic. And so, you know, we, we, we pull up to this, you know, next to this nuclear missile silo, we open the, the van door, we, you know, run and get our things, we stuff it back into the, the van and then take off. And I think they were like, what the hell is going on? And so <laughs> on the way back, we actually got like monitored by a, a Black Hawk helicopter. Oh, interesting. Uh, on, <laughs> yeah, on, um, on 80. So we were driving back on 80 and this helicopter just kept going by and we're like, oh, that's strange. What's, what is this thing? And then it circled us a few times, a couple more times. And it's like, oh, they're not a threat. And they just took off. Oh you know? my gosh. So <laughs> did you know, to be, I mean, you said you could visually figure out what they were. Did you know when it landed, you're like tracking it and look in your map or whatever, whatever software you're using to go, oh, that's, that's right by, or you didn't know until you pulled up. No, not until we pulled up. Oh my God, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that. So it's also like a big, a big adventure. Like where will they land? Right. But that's, that's intense. Yeah. The, the unpredictability is we, we talked to Spitch more about it, but it's like, yeah, you just, you just kind of never know. I mean, they know to an extent, but there's right, also, right. right you, like you said, that, that sense of unpredictability. Uh, and this was a, this turned out fine. It wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, okay. But I, I think that that's, um, that's that's kind of a great uh, segue into how we rounded out the conversation, like this idea of unpredictability or just fieldwork in mm-hmm. general. We had a great time chatting about all the interesting places he's been and work that he's done. But there was, I, I'll say maybe a more serious reason why we wanted to dedicate a whole series to fieldwork. The thing with fieldwork is it is, it's absolutely critical to to science. You know, I mean, we are making the observations that that really, you know, we're understanding the inner workings of the natural world, and you can really only do that by being there in place, you know, in 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 measuring these things in the best way you can. And so it's, I mean, I think it's extremely important. A lot of people think we just go out there and have fun and go, you know, go on vacation essentially for for a month at a time or whatever. But I, I think it is sort of a, a cornerstone of, of earth science and it's other researchers wouldn't be able to do the work they do, you know, modelers or laboratory scientists or whatever, without having those, those field observations. So, yeah. And yeah. And I mean, you're always solving, you know, some, you hope to solve some unknown. And I think that, you know, when I think of field work, I, I always think of like the Twister movie, you know, how like important. <laughs> I love <laughs> like, Twister. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like how important like that guy, those people were so dedicated to getting those little tiny sensors with wings into that Twister. You know, mm-hmm. they were like, it came down to like, you know, life or death just to figure out what's going on inside that that Twister. And, and it's kind of true. Like you have to you have to be dedicated like that. Maybe not to the extent of, you know, willing to <laughs> strap yourself, you know, to a, a post while a tornado goes by. But right. yeah. 
What do yeah. you think of Twister? Do you like Twister? I actually don't think I've ever seen it. I can like Vicky. picture. I could picture like specific visuals from it. Oh no! But I don't know if I've seen the whole movie, or maybe I have, and it's just not. Oh, I'm so. Oh, I'm so disappointed wow. in you. I'm really surprised by your reaction to this one. I love Twister. I don't know if it's if it's the most scientifically accurate movie, uh, but I am one of those people that can, I can very easily separate science and fiction. Like science mm-hmm. fiction, there's a big comma in between there uh, oh, for sure. me. So yeah. I, I don't, it's, oh man, Twister just has a special place in my heart. We actually, we watched it this summer. We watch it like once every few summers just for giggles. It's like a summer movie for us. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever watched it with Doug? Oh, you know what? I haven't. Uh, and maybe uh, maybe next time I, I see him, we'll, we'll make a point of it. Uh, yeah, a, just a, bill, it, bill it to AGU. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, just kidding. that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to you, Shane, for bringing us this story and to Doug for sharing his work with us. This episode was produced by me with audio engineering from Colin Warren and artwork by Jay Steiner. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please rate and review us and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all and we'll see you next week. Not not everything you've done has been abroad, right? You've done some work here in the States. Um, I think you mentioned like doing work around the Marcellus Shell. Is that right? Yes. So um, you might want to correct yourself there. It's not Shell, it's Shale. You, what's funny about that? You know yeah. what? No, I'm leaving this in. Actually, it's going to be like an outtake. Because like, I'm yeah. from that area. I should know yeah. this. Marcella Shell. What am yeah, I doing, Shell. Shane? <laughs> Shell. Jeez. Um, yeah. Please leave that in. That'll be funny. I, 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 it's definitely... Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll see. All right. But I will, right. I will, I will re-say it um, just for posterity. Okay, okay yeah. Mm-hmm.